You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. DA Fonnie Willis has consented to be here with us. And so my only request from this family today is, this is a really hard job I'm trying to do. And I am an imperfect human being, but I can literally feel the people who loves me's prayers. None of us would ever say, you know, I really want to fall asleep with Sean Hannity's voice just echoing in my mind. I really want Laura Ingram and Jesse Waters to catechize me in the good, the right, the true, and the beautiful. The alternative is a we-before-me approach to marriage. And what we find is that couples who kind of really think about their marriage in terms of us and our family are more likely today to be flourishing. The new miracles today are the sacraments. Because if you go with the definition that a miracle at the time of Jesus was the creator, come to his creation to set it free, that's what Jesus does in the sacraments. Missouri dairy farmers love issues, etc. How do you answer a question when your child comes home from public school and they realize that their science teacher is contradicting the things that they're learning in church? And they ask, is my science teacher, do they not know the curriculum for teaching? Or what about genetic modification and genetic mutation? Are they the same thing? Does the Bible say anything about that? Well, kids have questions. That's why we have a series called Kids Have Questions. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Friday afternoon, March the 1st. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll continue that series with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Then we'll spend some time with Pastor Chris Roseborough of Fighting for the Faith. This week in Pop Christianity, hearing from Joel Osteen, he did a sermon on hearing the whispers of God. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. Happy to be here. Picking up from a subject we were pursuing uh, last time we talked, uh, the question from the kid is, what are good and godly habits and bad habits? Yeah, I think this is such a great question. I'm thrilled the child is answering it, and I wish wish more Christians would ask this sort of question. So let me first offer what I say to the child, and then I'm going to spend a few minutes unpacking it because there's a lot really to explore here. So to the child, this is such a wonderful question. Let me walk you through it. Here's how to think about it. What are you aiming after? So let's say you were aiming after saving for a new bike. How would you do it? Well, you'd make the habit of setting aside a little money at a time, maybe even putting in an interest-bearing account so that it would earn interest. And you'd watch the account get bigger until you had enough to buy the bike. It's the same way with habits. You need to aim them after the result that you want. Do you want to be a mature man of God? Hours and hours in front of a screen won't take you there. Establishing a habit of reading your Bible, even if it's just for five to ten minutes a day, will. Establishing a habit of being in worship, of participating in Sunday school and confirmation, will take you to mature and godly manhood. Being loose with your tongue, so saying unkind or dirty words, will not take you to mature and godly manhood. Controlling your words and speaking the truth in love will. Reading thoughtful literature and books will take you to mature and godly manhood. Controlling your anger and passions will take you to mature and godly manhood. Seeing other people as obstacles or the means to your pleasures and desires will not take you to mature and godly manhood. Seeing them as your neighbor to whom you owe love and truth will take you to mature and godly manhood. So, check your behaviors and thoughts. All of them are taking you somewhere. All of them. Are they taking you where you want to go? If the answer is no, then you need to develop new habits. 
If you're not sure about one, ask me. Or if you want to give me more specifics, ask. I'm happy to help. You have the potential to become an amazing man of God. And then I say the child's name there, but I'll leave that off for now. And the way there is through your habits. Okay, so that's where my answer to the child ends. And like I said a second ago, I, I just love this question. And I wish, I wish more people would be asking this sort of question. And here's what people need to understand. It's this. Habits are not neutral. Okay, so habits take you somewhere. So for example, years ago, my wife and I, we lived on Long Island and we would take the train into Manhattan. Then we'd hop on the subway to get around. And if you've ever been to Manhattan, you know that these subways, they have destinations. It does matter which one you get on. They aren't neutral because they're going somewhere. See, our habits are actually the same way. They're taking us somewhere and they get us there little by little. So subways, they move along pretty fast, but habits crawl, but they do take you somewhere. I've referenced before in our conversations, James Smith's book, Atomic Habits. And I want to quote something he says in that book, because I think he's right. I think it's really insightful. He talks about the interest accruing nature of habits. Here's what he writes. Your outcomes are a lagging measure of your habits. Your net worth is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning habits. Your clutter is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. You get what you repeat. And then he adds this. If you want to predict where you will end up in life, all you have to do is follow the curve of tiny gains or tiny losses and see how your daily choices will compound 10 or 20 years down the line. Okay, so that's where his quote ends. But I want to put this, just put this very bluntly for all of us. We are our habits. That's actually really important and it's very sobering. See, we are not our idealized self. We aren't the person we like to think we are. We are our habits. And our heart will follow our habits because habits, uh, they're about training or ordering our desires, our, our loves. And here's the thing that every confessing Christian, we, we need to know this. Our desires, our loves, if you will, they need to be ordered. They, they need to be ordered. If they aren't ordered, then they're just going to go along with the cultural flow or, or with our sinful nature. And these are not headed anywhere good. By the way, this is an important part for people to appreciate. Directing our desires toward the good is actually one of the main purposes of the church's liturgy. It's to order our loves, to direct us toward, to direct our desires toward or after what God has called good. So then in our personal lives, we need to realize that, that we need to be very intentional about our habits. So we need to choose them wisely. And I, I want to be just a little bit more pointed here because thus far, you know, I've been pretty general and I suspect most of us can kind of nod along. But my contention is that we aren't really paying attention to our habits in the church today. I'm going to give just a few examples. Okay, so depending on which study you look at, the average young person will spend between seven and 10,000 hours playing video games before they reach 21. I mean, this is a staggering number. Let me just try to put it in perspective. Again, depending on which study you look at, it takes about 4,800 hours to get a bachelor's degree, right? I mean, 4,800 versus seven to 10,000, okay? So these video games, they are a habit and they are aimed toward a destination. And here's what we're, we're seeing, okay? Many of our young people are actually now starting to arrive at the destination that these habits have led them to. And the data are startling. 
and they're starting to pile up on what this destination looks like. It looks like mental illness, no motivation, hamstrung executive function, limited emotional regulation, and indifference toward relationships in the, what I call the three-dimensional world, the unpixelated three-dimensional worlds, I like to call it. It looks like a lack of volunteerism. It looks like anxiety and depression and on and on. So we've got people with fully grown bodies and malnourished and stunted minds. Let me give one more example, because some of us may think, oh, good, I don't do video games. I'm great. All right, so depending on which study and age group you look at, our culture watches between two to four hours of TV a day. So do the math. That's over a thousand hours per year. So that's a habit. And that habit is taking you somewhere. And it's catechizing you the entire way there. And we might not like the sober truth about where it's taking us, but it is taking us to, I mean, just rattle off a list here. It's taking us to diminished imaginations, to reduced attention spans, to the fear of boredom. We have this great fear in our culture of being bored. It's taking us to the inability to have our own thoughts. It's taking us to sedentary lifestyles and all the health problems that go along with that. It's taking us to an obliviousness to the existence of our neighbors, isolation from our communities, a destruction of family bonding through conversations, this destruction of the family meal, and the distancing from the church. So look, TV is a habit. And to return to what I said before, we are our habits. So here's the question I want us to ask, all right? What should we do? Well, we're going to need better habits. So let me just give just a, just a few ideas, just, just a place to start. First, make the habits that you want to break or to diminish, make those hard and make the ones you want to develop, make those easy. So let's take TV, for example. Take the batteries out of the remote and put them in the other room. Or put a wall hanging or sliding doors in front of your TV and unplug it. And honestly, I also think we really need to reimagine the arrangement of our living areas. Because right now, most of our living rooms look like high places with the TV as the altar. So I think we really need to rethink the way we do our living space. So, for example, in our home, our TV, and just warning, we're weird, all right? Our TV is in our attic. It's been there for years. I haven't missed it. And I'll tell you what else. Neither have I missed spending time with my children in conversation, in doing read-alouds, in playing games. You see, I wanted to prioritize the habit of engaging my children in conversation. And I know my nature, okay? I know. I knew that the TV was not going to help me do this. I needed to break that default habit of my hand just falling on the remote and then just mindlessly turning the TV on, right? I needed to break that. So we put it in the attic. And we filled our living room with books and an open space for games and three-dimensional group-oriented imagination-inducing toys. See, my hope was to prioritize the parent-child relationship and the sibling relationships over the TV and especially over individualized screens. And I just want to say, it's worked. It's really worked in amazing ways. I could tell more stories, but it's worked in amazing ways. So what we did was we made the TV nearly impossible to turn on and the family interaction the default. See, this is the habit. So just to wrap this up, summarizing very briefly, we are our habits. Our habits are not neutral. And to break bad habits, we need to make them hard. To develop good habits, we need to make them the default. Now, like I said, a lot more to say on that, but I think that's a good place to start. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. We're doing our series, Kids Have Questions. The next question has to do with Bible quotes and stories for athletes. 
We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. You can help our Lutheran servicemen and women stay spiritually strong by enrolling them in the ministry by mail program. Military members receive a welcome packet with Christian resources, including portals of prayer. Enroll today at lcms.org slash armed forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. Jonathan, the next question, what are some good Bible quotes and stories that an athlete could benefit from? Great. I love the question. So I say to the child, wonderful question. I want to start with something a little more foundational before we get to the athlete question. So track with me here. You may participate in athletics, and in this sense, you would be an athlete, but you are not first an athlete. You are first a creature, and as such, you have a creator. So we need to start with these words. This is from Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. So you are a male, a male image bearer of God. This is your identity. But let's add one thing to that. You are a redeemed creature. The Bible says from 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So Christ shed his blood to redeem you, to make you his own, so that you can live under him in his kingdom forever. These truths may seem very basic, but they're essential before we answer your question. You are a created and redeemed image-bearing child of God. So think of it this way. The first name on your team jersey is Jesus. Then it can be your school. Now we're ready to talk about how a child of God can bring God's word to bear in athletics. Where do we begin? with your teammates. In other words, the first question isn't really about you. The first question is this, what do you owe your teammates? And here the Ten Commandments apply. You owe them honor and truth and integrity and purity. Or perhaps we could say it this way, you owe your teammates the fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes about this in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You should bring this fruit to bear in your efforts. Now, 
we can bring other verses to bear in this question. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So pay careful attention to what Paul is saying, because it's really important. He makes reference to athletes, but what does he point out? Athletes train and discipline themselves so they can vigorously compete for a prize. But notice what Paul says. The prize is perishable. In other words, it's temporary. It's not that it's bad. It's that it won't last. So what point is Paul making? We Christians need to take the same mentality of training and being disciplined into our living as Christians because we're setting our sights on an imperishable prize. So we need to put more energy into our efforts to run as a Christian than we do into our efforts to run in a race or to play basketball. And here's one more verse to consider from Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. In this chapter, Paul's addressing various vocations in which Christians might find themselves. But in a general way, his words can apply to athletics. If you participate in athletics, don't make them about you, about your glory, about your fame, about your importance. Remember, you are a creature, a redeemed creature. You didn't create your body. You didn't redeem your body. You don't own your body. So what you do with it shouldn't be about bringing you attention, but the one who created and redeemed you. Okay, so that's where my answer to the child ends. Now, let's expand upon that. On the one hand, I can really appreciate this child's question. So we can approach this, in, and you probably noticed me doing this. I didn't use this term, but this is sort of a table of duties sort of way, all right, from, from the catechism. If athlete is one of your vocations, how do you live in it? Well, here's the thing about vocations and what Luther gets right in the table of duties. The thing about vocations is that they're neighbor-focused. So vocations are very concerned to ask, what do I owe my neighbor? Or what does love require of me in this situation? So that's what I really focused on in my answer. And I also tried to start by, by grounding him in his creational identity as an image-bearing male creature, right? So an image-bearing male redeemed creature. And this is really important. So athlete would be a secondary identity marker. And it's, it's critical to remember that in so many ways, beyond athletics. This is so important to, to get these in the right order. But there's something else I really want to highlight here. See, there's this tendency among a lot of Christians today to slice the Bible up into sort of you know inspirational verses. And I'll just say what should be obvious, but... This is not what we mean by the inspiration of Scripture, right? It's not just a book full of inspirational quotes. Now, just like everybody else, I mean, I have my favorite verses, and that's appropriate. We should all have our favorite verses. But I'm talking about the tendency to treat the verses of Scripture, I call it treating it like fortune cookies, right? So these little snippets that have no context beyond themselves. So what this does this sets us up to be biblically illiterate people, and it sets us up to be deceived by whatever preacher is popping open fortune cookie Bible verses up on stage. Just because somebody is quoting the Bible doesn't mean he's preaching the Bible. I mean, the devil quoted the Bible in Jesus' temptation, right? Think about that. The devil loves fortune cookieing the Bible. It's the easiest way to make it say something other than what it actually says. So rip it out of context, make it sweet to human tastes, and you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And honestly, this is probably the easiest way to knock Jesus out of the text. Just make verses into these little inspirational quotes to help you be good at whatever you're trying to be good at. 
If Jesus is anything in this fortune cookie theology, he's your inspirational can-do quote of the day. And that's just not how we should understand scripture. So what I really want people to appreciate is the Bible is not a bunch of fortune cookies. It's this grand tapestry with dozens and dozens of beautifully interwoven storylines that we weave together to present Christ to us and Christ for us. So you can think of every verse in the Bible like a string in this tapestry. No matter which one you pull on, it's ultimately attached to and woven into Jesus. And because of this, you can't really just pull one out. If you pull on it, you're going to get the whole story with it, a whole narrative. Now, again, the child's question is not wrong. There's a way to come after his question. It's through the lens of creation and redemption, through the lens of the table of duties and vocation. But it's certainly not through any sort of fortune cookie approach to Scripture. And obviously, there's way more to say on this question, too. But I think this is enough just to give us a starting point in our thinking. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's part 22 of our series, Kids Have Questions. We've got a question about genetic modification and genetic mutation next. You can support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., crossweh.com slash LPR. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our first stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A D C R U C E M.com. Truth, beauty, goodness. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back. We are answering kids' questions in our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Connor, the next question, is genetic modification and genetic mutation the same thing? Does the Bible say anything about it? Oh, I love this question. Love it. Okay, so I say to the child, wonderful and thoughtful questions. They are not the same thing. Here's why. Genetic modification involves intentionally altering a gene to improve it or fix it in some way. So it's aimed after a specific, beneficial, life-supporting outcome. Further, it requires human intelligence to direct it. Genetic mutations are random changes to genes. So these changes are not aimed toward anything. They are completely random, and they almost never benefit an organism. Remember our example in class of the video game code. Let's say someone had to copy that code by hand. Inevitably, they're going to make mistakes. Will those mistakes benefit the game? No. But this is what evolutionists are claiming, that random copying mistakes somehow moved Pac-Man to World of Warcraft. That's ridiculous. Random copying mistakes could never do that. The same holds true in DNA. 
Random copying mistakes don't move organisms from one kind into another. And the Bible does have something to say about this. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that God created organisms according to their kind. Within these kinds, God built in the ability for organisms to adapt to their environment. Think about how many different breeds of dogs there are. But there is a limit to their adaptability. Genetic mutations can bring about certain limited changes to an organism. But no amount of genetic mutations can write the genetic code necessary to move a dog, say, into a horse. There's a limit to an organism's change. Now, in regards to genetic modification, so going back to that, we may need to ask why a person would do this. If it's to grant healing or to repair, there may be a place for this. If it's to change something that isn't broken, then we may need to ask whether this is wise or good. Okay, so that's where my answer to the child ends, but I really want to take a few minutes to expand upon this. There's a lot here, and I think it's important to address. So, first with genetic modification. I think this is becoming a really pressing issue today, and Christians really need to start thinking deeply on this. I think it's especially giving a new energy to the transhumanist movement. Back in November, you re-aired an interview with Brandon Steenbach on this, and you probably talked about this in that interview. I would direct people back to it. I'm sure he did a good interview because I've heard Brandon speak on this before. Actually, we did a conference together up at Bethany Lutheran in Mankato, and I heard him talk about the transhumanist movement. So I think this is an area that Christians need to be thinking about and doing some reading on or listening on. So I would direct people to go back and look up that interview you did with Brandon. I think it probably well worth their time. But I do think it's a live question on whether we should or shouldn't modify our genes. So the question is going to be, where is the line between repairing and enhancing? So, you know, you have people today suggesting that humans, we should merge with technology. You know, so like, for example, we've got this Apple mixed reality goggles right now. I think these are taking us closer to it. So I think the, the question that's going to be built off of this sort of thing is, can we do that sort of thing by modifying our genes? I think some are aiming toward this. We hear people sometimes talk about uploading the human mind right onto the cloud. So I think there's a lot to think about there for Christian discernment. And I definitely would direct people to the interview with Brandon. But for our purposes, I really want to spend some time discussing genetic mutations, all right? Because these are a different animal. And I want to just spend a few minutes thinking on this. And I'm going to keep it as simple as, as I can, because I know not everybody gets as excited about this as I do. But just to be very simple and basic, because this is really important to understand, mutations are copying mistakes in DNA. So for some of us, just think back to biology. DNA forms this beautiful double helix structure, you know, with the four nucleobases, the guanine, cytosine, adenine, and thymine, right? And the GCAT. Uh, this is where DNA stores the information for building proteins. So this is where the code is stored, the instruction manual for building and folding these proteins. But very quickly, I want to define proteins because these things are so cool, okay? I'm going to use an expert in the field so you get someone who actually knows this stuff, obviously, inside and out. Dr. Stephen Meyer, and I'm sure most of us have heard his name. He's the director of Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He's the author of lots of books. I'm going to quote from his book, which is Outstanding, Signature in the Cell, where he succinctly defines a protein. And this, this is really important, okay? And it's fascinating. So he says this, proteins build cellular machines and structures. They carry and deliver cell cellular materials, and they catalyze chemical reactions that the cell needs to stay alive. Proteins also process genetic information. To accomplish this critical work, a typical cell uses thousands of different kinds of proteins, and each protein has a distinctive shape related to its function just as the different tools in a carpenter's toolbox have different shapes related to their functions. So in plain English, what he's saying is, proteins are amazing. They are these custom-built machines for a panoply of purposes. But I have to point this out. Listeners, I hope you caught this. 
See, Dr. Meyer pointed out that it takes proteins to build proteins. Right, so proteins to carry out the digital code for the building of proteins. I don't want to get too far afield from our question on mutations, but I, I just want people to appreciate this. You need to start with the things you need to build. Try solving that as a materialist. I mean, you've got a non-starter right from the get-go. So this is like, if you're going to try to invent a car for the first time, but you realize you needed some parts, you're short a few parts. So you hop into your car and drive down to the hardware store to pick up the parts you need. So we see the problem there. You can't start with a car. That's the sort of problem we've got here with proteins. They're starting with proteins and those are the things they need to build. But let me just keep going for a moment. So let's just pretend, which is what evolutionists are really good at doing, let's just pretend we miraculously have everything we need. We've got the digital code. I mean, it just showed up on its own, right? Lucky us. And we've got these elaborate and specifically crafted protein machines to help us implement the code. Now we need to be able to replicate them. And this is really important. We have to have all of this in order, all of it in the right order, and replicating before we can even begin to talk about genetic mutations. So before we can get an error in the digital code for making these proteins, we have to have the digital code and the necessary protein machines to carry out the code. So here's where we are. This is abiogenesis stuff. This is life from non-life stuff. And we haven't even gotten to mutations yet. So for any listeners who really want to geek out on this, Google Dr. James Tour. He's a synthetic chemist at Rice University. He loves Jesus. This guy is a rock star in the abiogenesis world. He's all over YouTube. He gets very technical, but he's captivating, and he's holding evolutionist assumptions to the fire. Okay, now I know this is taking me a minute, but I'm doing all this groundwork on purpose because evolutionists love to start with mutations. But that's like starting with an airplane in the air flying with no wings. Okay, but we all know this. No wings, no fly. So here, no code, no instruction manual, no proteins to carry out the instructions, no replicating life. So before you can even talk about mutations, you got to have replicating life. And let's also just appreciate this digital code. First, okay, the digital code on DNA, it is more complex and more compressed and more directional. So in some sections of DNA, you can read the code forward and backwards and frame shifted forward and backwards and have meaning and purposeful code every direction. So it's more complex, more compressed, and more directional than any code we have ever come up with. And you have to have that code up and running before you can even begin to talk about mutations. And evolutionists are somehow still trying to get us to believe that that code doesn't require a coder. I mean, really? This is like saying that Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment was authored without an author. I mean, seriously, that's laughable. But it's actually worse than that. It's like saying this, crime and punishment magically sprang into existence without an author, and then, through millions of years of copying mistakes, we got all of Dostoevsky's works without Dostoevsky. That's closer to the truth. But that would be easier than the problem facing origin of life scientists. So again, you got to solve this problem before you can even begin to talk about mutations. And when you finally get to mutations, which you're not going to be able to do, but even if, you, if we let you start there, you have to explain how copying mistakes produce order. So how you can get from Pac-Man and mutate it to World of Warcraft by piling up copying mistakes in the digital code. I mean, that game is going to crash long before it gets anywhere close to World of Warcraft. So... The problem then in biological systems is worse. I mean, it's inconceivably worse because you have to keep the organism alive. If it dies, you're done. 
game over, right? You start over. You don't get to pick back up where you left off. You start over from nothing. And there's a lot more to say on this. I've got articles on this on my blog, and I recommend Dr. Meyer's works. I highly recommend Dr. James Tour, and I highly recommend the video series from the Discovery Institute. I was putting out on these questions. One is from Science Uprising, and you can Google that, or you can probably put it on uh, your page for them. And long story short, these are outstanding video series. They take very high-level concepts and make them understandable to the average person. So way more to say, but that's probably enough for now. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Our guest is Pastor Jonathan Connor. There's a question about the science curriculum in one of the children's schools next. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. The characteristic mark of hope is that it always looks into the future, so says Hermann Zasse in the March issue of the Lutheran Witness, which is all about hope and overcoming the quiet despair with which we are so in danger of being overcome in these days. To find out more about hope, what Christian hope looks like, and what it means to be a hopeful community, pick up your copy of the March issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. This question may require a little context. Are you saying that my science teacher doesn't know his curriculum or teaching? All right, so let me give some context on this. Here's what's happening in class. Kids were echoing the statements that they had heard their science teacher make at school, and he's pretty upfront about his beliefs on evolution and so forth, and he makes these comments quite regularly. So these statements were pretty atheistic in nature and very promotive of Darwinian evolution. And these kids, they had heard these questions, and they're throwing them at me rapid fire in class, and I'm responding to their claims with science and scripture. And so this child's question is picking up on this conversation. So in class, I was very respectful toward the teacher. I'm not trying to pick fights with the teacher, but I was just pointing out where that worldview is insufficient and where the evidence was simply not accurate. So here's what I say to the child. And the child is asked basically, are you saying the science teacher doesn't know his curriculum for teaching? And I say, no, he knows his curriculum very well. I'm saying his curriculum is wrong. I'm saying the claims the curriculum makes are wrong. I'm saying its assumptions of naturalism 
are closed-minded and a hindrance to science, which should be an open-minded endeavor to follow the evidence wherever it leads, instead of closed-mindedly refusing to consider that a superintelligence might be behind the inconceivably specified and complex information we see in DNA, i.e. insisting that the code of DNA has no code, like insisting that a program has no programmer. I'm saying the evidence is against the evolutionary worldview presented in his curriculum. We discussed the impossibility of getting from non-life to life in our last discipling event, and I'll explain what that is in just a minute. The impossibility of even getting one functional protein, even if you were trying combinations of amino acids since the world began, even if we use an evolutionary time frame, is so minuscule that the odds of selecting a predetermined atom in our Milky Way galaxy on the first try and blindfolded would be better than getting one functional protein by random processes. I'm saying that his curriculum doesn't take the requirements for life on a planet seriously because it doesn't seriously examine all of the necessary habitable zones that have to be exquisitely fine-tuned to make life even possible. I'm saying the evidence against Darwinian evolution is mounting higher and higher every day, and his curriculum presents none of it. It simply pretends like it doesn't exist. I'm saying your science teacher knows his curriculum very well, but his curriculum is wrong on the origins of life. So that's where my answer ends. Let me first comment. I mentioned a discipling event. We do that as part of our confirmation program. Three times a year, we we don't have regular class, but we bring all of the families together. We have a meal together and we address different topics and teach the whole family on this topic. And so this was one of our topics, this question of creation evolution, which we addressed at our last discipling event. I was making reference to that in the answer to the child. I also want to start off by recommending another resource called genesisapologetics.com. Genesisapologetics.com. They have this series called Debunking Evolution. It's witty, it's fun, it digs into the actual textbooks that kids have in their classroom. They address things like radiometric dating, uniformitarianism, human evolution, vestigial organs, natural selection, homology, I mean, on and on and on. So we watch these with our kids and we all got stuff out of them. I mean, I got a lot out of them. We, we loved them. They were so much fun. So I highly recommend Genesis Apologetics, the debunking evolution series. But let me go back to the material in our public schools textbooks. Here's what we need to understand. They are driven by materialism, or you could call it naturalism. So either a philosophical materialism or a scientific materialism or you could call it philosophical naturalism or methodological naturalism. So the first, this philosophical materialism or naturalism, in this case, they philosophically reject the existence of God, here's the key, before beginning science, okay? And the second, with methodological naturalism, they methodologically reject God as a possible causal explanation for anything. So they would basically say this, we can't allow any supernatural explanation. So God may exist, but he doesn't matter to us because no causal role can be attributed to him because we're arbitrarily saying so. So they just start with that assumption. God is irrelevant. We will not consider him in any of our science. He's ruled out from the get-go. So uh, Philip Johnson, he died back in 2019. He's considered by many to be the father of the modern intelligent design movement. He observed this years ago, and he's spot on. He says this, science has become identified with a philosophy known as materialism or scientific naturalism. This philosophy insists that nature is all there is, or at least the only thing about which we can have any knowledge. It follows that nature had to do its own creating, and that the means of creation must not have included any role for God. Okay, so that's where his quote ends. But it's a very helpful observation. What I want people to understand is this is exceedingly close-minded. I mean, materialism is exceedingly close-minded. So before they even begin doing science, they conclude that God can't even be considered as a possible causal explanation. 
So before they even start the scientific endeavor, they close their mind to certain possible explanations. So Christians are always getting accused of being closed-minded, but the truth is actually the other way around. Let me just give an example. My son just used this in his original oratory that he presented at our district's individual speech competition. So his speech was on the need to be open-minded in science, to follow the evidence wherever it leads, even if that is to the mind of God. And he asked his hearers to imagine a crime scene investigator. So we've got a CSI, all right? He gets called to a DOA, so we've got a dead body. It's his job to investigate how that body got dead, all right? A good CSI won't arbitrarily limit his options. So he won't arbitrarily say, the cause of death will be from natural causes. But that's what we've got going on here. We've got a dead body with a knife in the back, a broken window, a clear sign of a struggle, and this CSI decides, before he even begins to look at the evidence, that the death is a result of natural causes. So, is that a good CSI or no? Well, obviously, no. That's a terrible CSI. But that's what we've got in our children's textbooks, because that's what's happening with the modern definition of science. So Jonathan Wells, he's a molecular and cell biologist. He's author of the books Icons of Evolution and of the book Zombie Science. They're both excellent books on exposing the bankruptcy of so many of the iconic, quote-unquote, evidences that are propped up by materialists to support their faltering theory. And so many of them show up in our kids' textbooks. So Dr. Wells writes this, it's becoming clearer and clearer to me that the modern approach to science is materialist philosophy masquerading as empirical science. The attitude is that life had to have developed this way because there's no other materialistic explanation. So let me go back to my son's speech for a moment. One of the questions he asked his hearers was this. He said, instead of asking, how did material processes begin life? Shouldn't we be asking, how did life begin? Okay, so for listeners, do you see the difference? See, the first one is, is in the first question, they're being asked by, by their textbooks, right? The textbooks are asking basically, how do material processes begin life? That's a very closed-minded question. The second one is the one we should be asking, even if it takes us to the very mind of God. I want to mention one more thing here, because it's something that these kids, they were asking me. They were peppering me with lots of questions. Their teacher was talking about life on other planets. He offered what is it's just this ill-informed argument to the effect of this. Well, there are so many planets out there that surely there's life on other planets. Now, I know, on like just an initial brush by, it sounds reasonable until you actually look at the evidence. So you have to look at the evidence of what it takes, first of all, to get from non-life to life, right? And all the physical constants that have to be just right for a planet to support life. So I'm going to, again, I'm going to recommend Dr. Tour. Google him, YouTube him. This guy, he is going after materialists, claiming materialism that, that can get you there, right? If you just give it enough time. He's going after them hard. The thing is, it can't. Materialism is blind. It keeps no lab notes. It doesn't have a clue where it's going. It doesn't have a goal. And time works on chemicals like the summer sun works on cottage cheese. Time isn't your friend. Time is your enemy. It's like trying to assemble a car with all of its parts scattered over the entire globe. But you're blindfolded, and you don't keep notes, and you don't even know you're assembling a car. And the parts you do happen to stumble upon are corroded and rusted by the time you stumble upon them. I mean, good luck getting your car assembled. And that is easier than getting life from non-life. But... Let's talk about all those other planets out there. The thing these textbooks aren't telling kids is what it takes for a planet to be a habitable zone. Let's just call this the Goldilocks zone. Last time I read up on this, scientists had identified over a dozen highly specified 
habitable zone. So you've got bowls of porridge that have to be just right for a planet even to have the possibility of supporting life. And let's just put it this way. Goldilocks is a spoiled brat who has to have her bowls of porridge heated to precisely the right temperature, like several digits beyond the decimal point out to the right temperature. For a planet even to have the possibility of supporting life, it has to have liquid water, just the right level of ultraviolet radiation, the right planetary rotation rate, the right tilt of the planet, the right atmospheric electric field, the right levels of carbon dioxide and monoxide, and on and on. And we are talking about balancing all of these bowls of porridge on a razor's edge, on a matchstick, on an egg, on a human hair, right? You get it? The more we learn about what it takes for a planet to be in that Goldilocks zone, the fewer and fewer candidates there actually are. The fact that there's even one is a miracle. And I'm not using that word flippantly. The fact that there's one is a miracle. So several years ago, Jay Richards and Guillermo Gonzalez, they wrote the book on this, The Privileged Planet, because they were so astonished by these realities. Uh, they've actually made it into a film, which is well worth watching. But here's what they wrote. Precious few plots of galactic real estate are as amenable to complex life as ours. So that statement, there are so many planets out there, there must be lots of them with life. It's just not scientifically informed. And the sad thing is that our textbooks, they're not telling our kids this. So what I said to the child was probably strong, but it's true. Her teacher knew his curriculum well. The problem is that his curriculum is just wrong. And it's wrong because it's closed-minded and unwilling to follow the evidence wherever it leads. We will go from this creation to the next creation with our next question from Pastor Jonathan Connor. Then it's This Week in Pop Christianity, Joel Osteen's sermon on hearing the whispers of God with Pastor Chris Rosebro. Stay tuned. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Trinity Orchard Farm is settled between two rivers showing the way to the water of life. For worship that is reverent, relevant, and refreshing like pure water or for excellent education in a unique setting, check out our church and school. We're just five miles north of Highway 370 on Highway 94 in St. Charles County. Visit us on the web at trinityorchardfarm.com. That's trinityorchardfarm.com. Our phone number is 636-250-3350. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's our series with him, Kids Have Questions. A final question. Will things taste better on the new earth? All right. I love this. And for those of you kind of going, whew, a non-science question. Good. Yes, this will be fun. This is a really fun one. I love this question. There's a lot in here. So let me answer to the child first, and then I'll expand upon it. So I say, I expect so. On the one hand, we have texts like Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. So it seems like there's going to be the sumptuous victory banquet. I expect it will taste exceptionally good. Further, I think it's reasonable to conclude that our resurrected body will be enhanced in many meaningful ways so that food might even taste better. Or maybe we'll just learn to cook better. Okay, so short answer to the child, and mostly that's because this particular child asks about 10 to 12 questions every week. So I have to be brief on some of my answers. But it's truly a fabulous question. Here's what I love about it. This question is taking the resurrection seriously. That's a good question. But it raises a question that we actually have to answer first before we get to that question. And here's the question. Will we eat on the new earth? Or maybe we could maybe better word it like this. Will we need to eat on the new earth? In other words, what will be the nature of this resurrected body? So I want to think through this for just a, just a few minutes. What do we know? Well, number one, we know we're going to have real, physical, imperishable, glorified, powerful, Holy Spirit-empowered bodies, right? That's as clear as day in Scripture. Two, 
the Bible repeatedly talks about feasting in the kingdom. So I think of Isaiah 25, which I mentioned to the child. It's this marvelous image of feasting on sumptuous food. And Dr. Robbie, author of the new CPH commentary on Isaiah 13 to 27, and I think you featured his work on issues, he's captured Isaiah's poetic skills. He's rendered this text, which I just read to the child. He's rendered it this way, and I love it. He says, a feast of fine dine, a feast of fine wine, fine dine only prime, fine wine well refined. I mean, that's great. See, Robbie really captures the poetic genius of Isaiah. But we also have texts like uh, Revelation 19, which talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and Revelation 22, with the tree of life filled with fruit in every season. So we have these biblical texts rhapsodizing about food. And we even see Jesus eating post-resurrection. And we refer to the Lord's Supper as the foretaste of the feast to come. So unless we're going to say that these are all metaphorical, which I don't think is justified, it would seem that our resurrected bodies will eat on the new earth. But here's the question. Will our bodies need to eat to survive? Gregory Lockwood, he makes brief reference to this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul is responding to the Corinthian position that since God was just going to destroy the body and food one day, that they could basically do whatever they wanted with their body. Well, Paul disagrees with this low view of the body, but our point for now is whether the resurrected body will eat. And Lockwood says this, he says, it seems that eating will not be required for sustaining the resurrection body. And I'm pretty sure that Martin Chemnitz talks about this in his The Two Natures in Christ, but I just didn't have time to look it up this week. But if I remember correctly, Chemnitz reasoned like this. He's basically saying, because we will be completely animated and empowered by the Holy Spirit, who doesn't need to eat to live, we won't need to eat to live. So if, if one of our listeners knows where Chemnitz talks about this, I'd love to know. I just couldn't find it this week. So it sounds like we won't have to eat to survive, but will we eat? Yes, I think we will. I think the question becomes then, well, why? Well, I'm going to take an educated guess here, but I think there's more to food than survival. And I really think this is something exciting to think about. So fellowship is often established and celebrated with food. I mean, the Lord's Supper is a great example, right? But just even beyond that, the fellowship that we will share at our tables with friends and family, it's often around food and it establishes this fellowship, this intimacy between people. And further, I really believe that God gave us food as a source of delight, right? just like with music or art and those, these sorts of things, right? To awaken this joy and delight within us. And, and that's to awaken this hunger for the true source of joy and delight in God himself. So going back to what I said earlier about the resurrected body being raised in glory, if God's glory is going to permeate the whole creation, even our bodies, why would it stop at our taste buds? Why would it stop at food? So I absolutely love that this child is thinking this way. And I would love for adults to start thinking this way. I mean, to sit down to a delightful meal and to wonder, I wonder how this is going to taste when my taste buds are glorified. You see, that's the way that God invites us to anticipate and to eagerly yearn for the resurrection, right? Take the hope of the resurrection all the way down to your taste buds. And if you can get it into your taste buds, I am confident that it will strengthen and enliven your confession of Christ. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. You'll find links recommended by Pastor Connor at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Jonathan, thank you. Thanks, Todd. It's a joy to be with you. Pastor Chris Rosebro, Fighting for the Faith, joins us next for This Week in Pop Christianity. We will hear from Joel Osteen on The Whispers of God.
Church music directors can find a new community at Prelude to Postlude, the CPH Music blog. Learn helpful tips for managing music ministry and involving members, and meet the composers of some of your favorite new pieces. Plus, find suggestions of music to use for special services, and preview some of our newest works with free samples you can use at your church. Visit us at preludetopostlude.org. Join Lutherans for Life at the for such a time as this Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org slash conferences. Real Reformation Radio. You're listening to Issues Etc. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. Hey, young adults, are you finding it harder and harder to meet and connect with other Lutheran men and women? Join us at University Lutheran Church in Champaign, Illinois, on Saturday, April 6th for the Martin Plus Katie Conference. We'll talk about being men and women in Christ, meet new friends, get to know each other, and have fun. Register at martinpluskatie.org. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-P-L-U-S-K-A-T-I-E dot org. Registration closes on Palm Sunday.